0: Well, thank you all as well for having us here and my family. and um, I wouldn't have volunteered for this job, but that's how it goes. And it's been a blessing the last number of evenings to be together in this way. There's a number other of other churches having services, and I'm, I'm just happy to be here um, in spite of that, in spite of having to preach. Um, we serve in the way that we feel we can, and, and that God gives us the grace to do it. And, and um, so, I've been blessed in taking this assignment, and it's, and it's an honor to me to be invited to do this. And somewhat humbling, you know, as to you know what do I have to share, but. I've, uh, I've been privileged to having put myself in study to learn some things myself, and that's how it goes, and it's always helpful. But you know, with our learning, I had to think of the scribes that wrote the law and copied God's Word, preserved the Word. And so often they were in the category of people that came under condemnation, and I look at that and wonder, how could it be? Weren't they absorbed in that? Probably a full-time job doing that, copying painstakingly, and they they did it very carefully. And yet when Jesus showed up on the scene, they did not see him as the Messiah. And so I, I recommend the study of God's Word as much as possible. I, I believe it's I believe it's good, but we don't want to go down that road to where we just see words. But we need to, to learn what's what the, the purpose of those words are to our hearts. And I think it's like Solomon, I think it was Solomon said, with all thy getting, get understanding. With all thy getting, with all your learning, with all the knowledge, with all your reading, get understanding. We need that. We need... Not just information. We need revelation to see what God is saying, to to see what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The story of Jacob, Jacob, the chosen nation. I'd like to begin in Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. It begins here. Jacob was the son of Isaac. It says in verse 20 that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife. The daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Hadarama, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. So he was 40 when he married. And then Verse twenty-one, you have a twenty-year gap, and so he was patient. It says, Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. That verse, in that verse, three things happened. Um, we think, well, she just she had a son, no big deal, but. It says, Isaac entreated the Lord. I don't know if he did this after 20 years or along the way. It took him that long to realize it, but it seems like it, it kind of happened all at once. The other thing was the Lord was entreated of him. We think when we pray, when we ask God, we just assume God's there to, to hear and answer our prayer. That is true, but do we realize it, it does take God. There is a communication. We're not just a voice crying in the wilderness. There is someone that hears. And God submits himself to being entreated of us. And I don't think we need to um, look at that and say, and just uh, take it for granted. We need to have a heart that prays to God in such a way that in our hearts we feel that... um, we have given of our, ourselves in such a way, in humbleness, humility to God, that God is able to hear our prayer. And we can come to him with that confidence. The Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So at her conception, that was the beginning. That was Jacob's beginning. And in, in verse 22, though, it goes on to say here, and the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it be thus... If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Two nations are in thy womb, two manner of people. Isn't it interesting the language that the Lord uses? to describe a thing. God likes to use words. One people shall be stronger than the other. He revealed this to Rebecca. And so just as Isaac and Ishmael signified a thing with God, in the New Testament it talks about how that was a parallel An allegory. So so too, Esau and Jacob also signify a thing to be taken into consideration. So at this point, it appears that Isaac would have been 60 years old when Jacob was conceived. Now getting to Jacob, you know, there was that emphasis that we've been putting on these series of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all being lumped together. And God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But as I study the story of Jacob, it seemed like it took him a while. It took him a little while to accept the God of his fathers as his God. And we see a little bit of the progress it took for him to come to that understanding. And it began when he was fleeing from his uh, brother Esau in Genesis 28, verse 21. He made a vow to God. He made a bargain to God. And then later on, he kept up his end of that bargain. And so we'll we'll take a look at that later and, and see how it says concerning that. Verse 27, chapter uh, 25, it says, The boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. I don't know if the the New King James Version or any of your other versions would have a different word for being a plain man mild. a mild man, okay I was thinking plain would really line up with, with how we Mennonites like to to call ourselves in, in our manner of living <laughs> but uh, be that as it may Esau was a man of the field, and as such Esau appealed to his father Isaac, because Isaac was somewhat of a man in the field, he, he liked the fields, he liked being outdoors apparently, and that's where he met his wife, Rebecca, out in the field. Well, we have that thing with the birthright, um, in verse... 31 that issue came up that story of, of uh, Jacob he he obtained the birthright from his brother Esau and we see we see in Jacob maybe a little bit of, of uh, a conniving spirit. He was uh, a man of strategy he liked to... He liked to kind of manipulate some things. But it seems like he, the whole time he was doing it in a, in a legal way, in a way that it really couldn't come back on him. And that, um, that thing of him deceiving his dad later on, we look at that and wonder well, that definitely was an error. But, you know, he was doing that at the, at the uh, request of his mother and she kind of pushed him into it and so maybe the blame goes to her he was he was reluctant to do that but in all those failures it's it's a challenge to me that god continues to identify himself as the god of these three patriarchs i might look at Some instances of that in 2 Kings 13.23. Some of these are obscure passages. But it says in 2 Kings 13.22 and 23, but Hazel king of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz, and the Lord was gracious unto them, and had compassion on them, and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence as yet. God did bring judgment and, and uh, oppression on the people of Israel. And it speaks of that here. He, he did not cast them away as yet, as, you know, in the idea that maybe later on he would. But that is only in reference to those descendants. It, it is not in reference to the original three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it was for their sakes that he continued the blessing that he, he offered. And then I have to think of a prayer of David in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. I might read 10 through 18. It's such a beautiful prayer. And it's like I said, the, the words in the Bible. It's very wordy. It's, it's a benefit to us to read those words. We think, well, it's just redundancy. But here is David praying. And to me, it's, it's good to read the Old Testament, to allow that, that's, uh, the words of the Scripture to just simply wash us in our spirits. I think it has that cleansing effect. Wherefore, David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might. And in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. For we are strangers before thee and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. O Lord our God, all this store that we have received, to build thee an house for Thine holy name coming of thy hand, and is all thine own. I know also, my God, that thou triest the hearts, and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me in the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now I have seen with joy thy people, which are present here, to offer willingly unto thee, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people and prepare their heart unto thee. I like that prayer, David. It's a majestic prayer. It calls upon God. It, it just rises above all the uh, the little trivial things of life that some just distract us and take our focus away and he calls upon the Lord God of Abraham Isaac and of Israel a lot of times it's Jacob but here it's Israel and the Word of God continues to call Jacob Jacob even after his name was changed so I wonder if Israel came to pertain to more the descendants of Israel. Jacob refers to the person himself, the man Jacob. Well, Esau sold his birthright. Esau said, what profit is it to me, this birthright, if I'm about to die? I think he made an incorrect conclusion you know, there's times we evaluate the worth of something. Um, and, but the challenge is then to do it to the right reason, to come to the right conclusion. Now I think of Paul, he said, what advantages is it to me if the dead rise not to live um, righteously, To have a, um, to have this faith wherein we walk? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. But then Paul said the conclusion is we do die. The dead do rise. And so the hypothesis that many in the world arrive at is incorrect. The Bible would say that Esau despised his birthright. And that's how God characterized it. So that's pretty much how I would characterize it as well. Would, I have to consider, would um, God's blessing have been able to rest upon Jacob as designed, as desired, if he would not have con- connived and brought about his father's blessing in a deceitful way? Would any of that really have mattered to God? Is God not able to do things without us? having to connive and to strategize and to worry and to try to insert ourselves into how this would happen. I don't know if you've thought about that or not, but I think it it probably wouldn't have made any difference. And because uh, God has said in in Malachi chapter 2, he... He says, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessing. God has the ability to curse a blessing. Yea, I have cursed them already, he says, because you do not lay it to heart. Verse 5 says, My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear with, where, with wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. So I think the real... The real difference was the heart issue. God's sovereignty could have overrode, I believe, the blessing of, of that situation. Even though there, there does seem to be some, some emphasis that was placed on the Father and His blessing. And in a prophetic way, I think many of those things did come to pass. So I'm not sure where that fits into living honestly and uprightly before the Lord. But all we have is the scripture, and that's what we go by, that's what we believe in. And we need God's grace and, and uh, wisdom to understand, you know, what that's about, and what that means for us, and what, how we need to look at things. In Romans, God speaks to this about Esau and Jacob. I might look at Romans chapter 9. Verse 9, Romans chapter 9, For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that called. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob, have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. So I think Paul is trying to explain this. Now, I don't know how easy it is to explain because he kind of goes in circles and he uses different um different examples of the same thing often to explain a truth. And that leads me to believe that it's it's not a simple truth. But maybe our our calling is not to, simp- to always simply understand it, but to just believe it and to accept it. And I believe in time, God will reveal to us uh, things that maybe we we don't understand maybe things that would be helpful to us to apply to our lives uh, in that when the day t- would come but i think the lord uses these these two twins esau as an example of of human flesh and human nature a tendency of departure from god a, de- a tendency to A proneness to wonder from the law of truth and from the law of devotion and from a love of the truth. We know that that, um, Jacob obtained a blessing from his father. I want to just go now to... uh, I want to skip over some of that. I'll just go to chapter 28. Now, to, to Isaac's credit, even though he was deceived, he, he, he stuck by his, his, uh, <laughs> his misguided blessing. You could say. He honored that. He didn't try to reverse it or to back it up or change it. And I had to wonder, also in conjunction with all of that, did Rebekah reveal to, to her husband, to Isaac, what God had revealed to her concerning that prophecy, that the, that the elder would serve the younger, and so on? I don't know. It said that God told her, but we aren't told if she relayed that to, to Isaac. And you would think that with Esau... Um, going to the Hittites to obtain a wife, that would have been a red flag, should have been a red flag to, to Isaac. But at any rate, Isaac restates re, um, this blessing in chapter 28. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padarama, Padam, Padam, To the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife. Notice the singularity, a wife. Not wives. The ideal is what Isaac himself adhered to. He took one wife. And I think that was his intention for Jacob. From thence, of the daughters of Laban thy mother, thy brother's, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. And give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee, and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. And Isaac sent away Jacob. And some people that study this would say, well, Rebekah... Uh, kind of stepped in and, and made it appear that, that, that Jacob needed to go away to find a way, when really he needed to go away to escape from his brother Esau. And so maybe there was some deception there too, and she was trying to, to cast all of that in, in a positive light, in a favorable way, so that Isaac maybe didn't really know the issues between his two sons. Well, on the way to this other country traveled Jacob. And verse 11 says, He lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set and he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God ascending And descending on it, and behold the Lord stood above it, and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou art liest. To thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And he spoke further in that dream to Jacob concerning things to come, and his purpose to fulfill. And whatever that was, Jacob arose out of that sleep, and he was he was moved. He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid. And he said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, we think of joyfulness in the, in the presence of God, and I believe that's true, but you know, when God shows himself strong and powerful in a certain encounter or instance such as this, I don't detect a whole lot of joy. I think it was, it was fear. It was a godly fear that Jacob had. And it caused him to take some more stones. He took the stone that he had put for his pillows and and set it up, and poured oil upon the top of it. He he went to some, some work. He just he felt, I guess, like he needed to do something. And he called on the name of that place. He called on the uh, called the name of that place, Bethel. And he vowed a vow, saying, if, "If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go." And I looked at that and I thought, you know, he's, he's still a little bit hesitant to really go all out with this thing of, of who God is. He's saying, if, if God will do all these things and will go with me and give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. So I don't know if I'm reading that right, but it seems like he's kind of holding back. He's waiting for God to make some more promises before he really accepts God as the God of his fathers was to them. But he took that step. And he progressed in that way. And he went on his journey. Chapter 29. And verse 2, I'm just, I'm just going to kind of chronicle some of these events that stood out to me concerning Jacob, as time would allow here this evening. He met, um, he met up with this, it says, Behold, a well in the field. And lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. You know, I talked about allegories in the Bible and 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 making comparisons to the things we see and maybe seeing messages that God would have for us. But I've noticed whenever in the Bible there's an encounter at a well, it's usually something good. It's a positive thing. Think of the instances where there are people met at a well, and that was what was in the picture, usually it was, it was something that was a blessing. And I think of the blessing of water and what a well represents, the water of light to us. It says, Behold, lo, there were three flocks of sheep. Why does it say three flocks of sheep? And we know that God characterizes his people. Jesus characterizes his people as sheep. And so... My imagination got to thinking a little bit. Are these three flocks of sheep meant to represent, perhaps, three categories of God's people? And if if so, would it possibly be the Old Testament saints, those that were under the Old Covenant? Possibly the church, those under the New Covenant, and then the third group could be The tribulation saints. If you're inclined to believe in that word of prophecy concerning how that would work out, it's just a thought of mine. A great stone was upon the well's mouth. And it says they rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Well, immediately I start thinking of the stone that was rolled away on the day of resurrection to open up that source that wellspring of life. And Jesus, of course, speaks of us having that water of life that he is to us. He is that to us. And Jacob took upon himself to roll that stone away in verse 10. He saw it needed to be done, so he didn't... Wait, he just went and did it himself, and he meets up with Rachel and so on well he um he favors Rachel he favors Rachel, and uh, we we see that um, in verse. 16 and 17, and he um, he serves for a wife, and the Bible speaks of that too. Now, you know, Isaac didn't have to do that. He just, he didn't even have to go anywhere. And Abraham's servant obtained for Isaac a wife. So why did Jacob have to serve for a wife? I don't know if I, I have the answer to that, but... He, um, he was willing to do that. He served Laban. And it says in verse 20, they seemed unto him but a few days for the love that he had to her. And so when that was when those days were fulfilled, he um it came to the, the time of the wedding, and we see in verse 26 where uh, Laban kind of pulls a fast one on it and, and explains kind of after the fact you know why this was so now why didn't he why didn't he reveal this to Jacob earlier say um, in verse 18 or so when they they kind of made this deal I don't know but he ended up working another <laughs> Another seven years for the second wife, for the one wife, and then for the other. So, you know, they were kind of loose with these relationships. And thankfully, uh, we, don't, we don't carry that in our day and time so much, uh, polygamy and all that. But that has, that's how God worked in those days, and, and even God seemed to have his blessing on it. Because he saw that Leah was not favored, and so uh, when he saw that, he opened her womb. But Rachel remained barren. Leah had the the privilege of of having the firstborn son of Jacob. There was some that carried some clout in those days. But Rachel also had a privilege of being the, the last one to bear children for Jacob. The last of his 12 sons, Benjamin and Joseph. And in God's order of how this, this worked, it was often the younger that had the advantage in God's planning and design. think of how um, all this kind of stirred up envy among these women and you see you see that the disappointment that was and and how that the handmaids become <clears throat> involved when Rachel realizes that she is barren and and she has the desire to to be a part of this and pr- produce children she offers uh, her handmaid to, um, to Jacob, Bilhah. And Bilhah, we have the tribes of Dan and Naphtala. And so um, she claims those children. She names those children. And, and in that sense, she has, she's taken authority over those children as her own. Well, Leah sees what Rachel did, and she likewise offers her handmaid. To Jacob. Zilpah. And from Zilpa we have the tribes of Gad and Asher. So we have eight tribes so far for Jacob. Leah again bears two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. And then uh, Leah also has a daughter, Dinah. So there's, there's ten tribes. And, and finally... It says, God remembered Rachel and God hearkened to her and opened her womb in verse 22. And she conceived and bare a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Joseph was an interesting character and I don't want to talk about him too much tonight, but He was very much a type of Christ as well as Isaac. But when she had that son, she said, God has taken away my reproach. Well, you know, that's what Jesus does. He takes away our reproach. And then she began to prophesy. Um, I don't know where she got this, this word of knowledge, but... After she named him, she said, The Lord shall add to me another son. And that came true. That came true. She had a spirit of prophecy upon her at that point. Well, as the scene progresses here, Jacob is ready to leave. He's ready to get out of there. He's probably tired of Laban. And he says a... he says, Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served thee, and let me go, for, for thou knowest my service, which I have done thee. And Laban is reluctant to do this. He, he talks, he talks uh, Jacob into staying and helping him. Why? Because he sees the blessing of God on Jacob and on himself. Because of, of God... He says, I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. Isn't that interesting? And so they come to an agreement. And Laban says, appoint me thy wages. In other words, he offers Jacob uh, the privilege of saying, what do you want? I'll give it to you. And that tells me that he trusted Jacob's uh, sense of, of in stating his wages. He didn't think Jacob would take advantage of him um, in that way. Jacob seemed to, to be a, a man that operated in pretty much a legal fashion. But he looked for ways to, to uh, maybe do things a, a little bit unexpectedly, you could say. He was looking out for himself some, too. And you could say he was a conniver, but he was a legal conniver. And he tried to do it in a way that it would not come back on him. So, you know, sometimes we are that way ourselves. And I I tend to look at Jacob favorably because of of what the Word of God says about him and what um, the, the God acknowledges about Jacob. And in verse 33... Jacob agrees to stay and help Laban some more, but he he says, he says some things here. He says, So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come, when it shall come from my hire before thy face. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. So they made this deal that the, these cattle, uh, some apparently had spots and streaks, well, those would go. To Jacob, the regular cattle would go to Laban. It seems like a strange arrangement, but through that, Jacob found a way, either by God's grace or just... It it sounds like folklore, but he set this thing up, if you read the story, to where the speckled cattle multiplied. And he had a way with, with the breeding process and so on that the weak cattle... Bread and went to Laban because they weren't speckled and spotted. Whatever that was, whether it was God's sovereignty, uh, whether whether it was uh, Jacob's just understanding of of nature and how things worked, I think it was God's blessing. Um, it seems like some sort of a trick, but. You know, I don't really know how to ca- characterize All I know is at the end of the day, Laban started to realize that this Jacob was getting stronger than him. Much like Pharaoh in Egypt realized that the, the, uh, the Pharaoh that did not know Joseph realized that the people of God were getting stronger. And he didn't like it. And it gets to the place where, chapter 31, Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. And so Jacob says, it is time to leave now for sure. We are leaving. And in fact, the Lord commanded him there in verse 3. The Lord said unto Jacob, return into the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. It was time for a change. And he called his wives. Notice he called Rachel first. He called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock. And he explained all this to them. I'm not going to read that. But he did a pretty good job of convincing them that he was good and Laban was bad. And they listened. They realized the same thing. And they say in verse 14, Is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not counted of him strangers? For he hath sold us and hath quite devoured also our money. For all the riches which God hath taken from our father, that is ours, and our children. Now then, whatsoever God has said unto thee, do. And so Jacob rose up, set his sons and wives upon camels. And he does this. He stole away unawares, it says. Laban was not aware of this. And that he told him not that he fled. Now that is kind of funny to me. But possibly he was three days' journey away from where Laban lived at that point. Because if you read the story of all that cattle, Laban tried his own strategy. He separated those speckled cattle three days' journey from his, I think in the hopes that those cattle would not breed and cause it to be speckled. But at any rate, however that was, Jacob managed to escape and he fled. And it was three days' journey before Laban um, realized or found out, and he pursued. He pursued after Jacob, much like Pharaoh pursued when the children of Israel left. We know there, too, also how Rachel, she stole those idols, those images from her dad. I don't know why she did that. Maybe she had nostalgic value. Maybe she thought they would help her. Or maybe she thought if she took them from her dad that he would not have that perceived power or strength from those false gods. And Laban meets up again with Jacob. He's very displeased with him. God speaks to Laban in a dream in that process before he meets and says, don't say anything bad to Jacob, either good or bad. And so he, um, he has this conflict. And, and he says, he brings up the thing of the stolen images. Why did you do this? Um, he's, he's a little bit upset. And so he goes through and he searches. Of course, Jacob knows nothing about these images. That's, that's what's funny to me. And so in the integrity of Jacob's heart, he says, no way, we didn't do this. Nonetheless, he said, search, have at it. Laban searched all the tent and found nothing. And from verse 36 to 42, (laughs) Jacob goes on a, a rant. Says he was wroth and chode with Laban. I don't know what that word chowed means, but it doesn't sound like a good thing. <laughs> you can almost hear him shouting in these words What is my trespass? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued after me? Whereas have thou searched all my stuff, and why hast thou found of all my household stuff? Set it here before my brethren and thy brethren that they may judge between us both. This twenty years have I been with thee. Thy ooze and thy she-goats have not cast their young. And the rams of thy flocks have I not eaten. That which was torn of beasts I brought not unto thee. I bear the loss of it, my hand didst require it. Of my hand didst thou require it, whether it was stolen by day or stolen by night. In other words, whether it was my fault or not, I had to pay for it. You did not pay for it. Thus I was in the day and in the drought, consumed me the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my nights. Thus have I been twenty years in thy house. I served thee fourteen years for thy two daughters, and six years for thy cattle, and thou hast changed my wages ten times. Except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely thou hast sent me away now empty. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked thee yesternight. Amen. <laughs> you ever hear somebody go on a rant? It's like every, all the frustrations of the last 20 years are coming out here. And I think he did a pretty good job. And Laban responds to that. But as I, as I see Laban's response... It shows me he doesn't really have a good defense. He just kind of starts to babble some nonsense. You know, these children are my children. The cattle are mine. These daughters are mine. Well, that wasn't even true. Yes, they, they were his children, but they were married. So, anyway, he takes a stone. He wants to set up a memorial. He wants to make a covenant with Jacob. And we read how that happened. And Jacob took a stone there in verse 45. He said, gather stones and so on. Jacob's real good at gathering these stones. If you notice, there's numerous times in the Bible, stones and Jacob are somehow together. Jacob says, you want a memorial, I'll give you a memorial. But I think really in the heart of Laban, he had this fear that uh, maybe Jacob would, would come back, end up being mightier. And, and they make an agreement to not harm each other. In verse 52, this heap be witness and this pillar be witness that I will not pass over this heap to thee, and thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm. And so they they parted on fairly good terms, I would think. And so that the story of, of Jacob continues as he then he solved the problem of, of Laban, and now he meets with the problem of Esau. It's like Jacob has this problem that he's a just the problems find him. He's afraid of, of Esau. And you can see that how he's, he he sets forth his his animals in groups, and his people in groups, and he sends them on ahead to meet Esau and to procure favor in any possible way with Esau. He wants to be at peace with Esau, but he heard that Esau has 400 men. I've often wondered if Esau himself was fearful, and so he brought his men, or whether Esau was on the offense and he was going after him. I don't know for sure on that but they were kind of afraid of each other. And so Jacob sets this up. He's going to be last. He's going to be last and they they cross over. It seemed like there was a um, a divide or a stream there that they crossed over and he stayed he stayed there on the other side. And that is that is where he fights this this man, <laughs> you know it's funny he he tries to avoid a fight, and he lingers behind, and I think because of that he was there by himself and he, he ended up fighting somebody else and um, there's there's some mentions of that in scripture where he he fought with God, he fought with this angel, and ended up with a limp, walked with a limp the rest of his life and um He names the place because of that. He says, for I've seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. And apparently he was limping. And I wonder now if, if when Esau saw his brother limping, if that didn't garner some sympathy from Esau. And they were able to meet in peace and go their ways in peace. There was an instant where um, after that it seemed like things settled down and maybe Jacob made a mistake when he settled in Shalem, the city of of Shechem there in the latter part of chapter 33. We see where his daughter got involved with men of that city. And some say that Jacob really was supposed to go on to to Bethel and not remain there. But maybe he saw that as a favorable living place. And chapter 34 is just a a sorry story of of killing and and manipulation and deceit and uh, their daughter Dinah was defiled and so on. It It was not a good situation. But out of that, I believe Jacob learned some things. In 35... It says, God says again to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appears unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. And at this point, Jacob, I believe, he kind of revives. He he, he commands his household to put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto my God, who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. And they obeyed. They did all that. And it says, as they journeyed, the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about and they did not pursue after the sons of God. I spoke earlier uh, of the importance of the favor of God on your life and I see that here. Don't underestimate the value of God's favor on your life to ward off evil, to ward off circumstances that could occur just because of living in a, in a fallen world. And so we have all that. We have the, um, the death of Rachel because she, she bore a son there, chapter 35, and her, her prophecy was fulfilled. And so, um, that continues on. Jacob is a, um, one of the patriarchs. He was the last of the patriarchs. I often wonder if God had a purpose in having those three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Would that correspond perhaps to God as a, a triune God? God the Father, represented by Abraham. God the Son, represented by Isaac. And God the Holy Spirit, represented by Jacob. It's just a thought in my hand, in my mind. I'll let you come to your own conclusions about what that could be. I, um, I might say one more thing yet. It's, it's time to close, I think. I think there's some lessons we can learn between Laban and Jacob. Difficulty or, or difficult relations may indicate a need to move on, to make a change, as Jacob did in that situation. And when God says it's time to move, move, you know. Now is the, is the time. Could Laban, you know, I thought, what does Laban represent in our, in our own personal lives? Would it, would it be anything relating to Christianity or things that affect us? Could Laban perhaps be a type of, of hindering spirit that is pre- preventing our progress, preventing us from, from going forward? A spirit of the world, a spirit of, a controlling spirit that is not of God. But a spirit that wants to, to kind of play with us and, and play patty cake with us and to to keep us for its own advantages. A spirit that wants to rob you of your potential. And so on. You know, Laban's gods. I had to think of of um, <laughs> he must have had those gods. Thinking they they had some good. And, And when he refers to the God of Jacob, he doesn't call him my God. He calls him thy God, your God. So apparently he didn't claim the same God. If a God can't protect itself from being stolen, you know, how is it going to protect you? That's one way to look at that. Now, I will say one good thing about Laban. When Isaac was seeking a wife, and this was years earlier, he said, the thing proceedeth from the Lord. In other words, he recognized, him and his father Bethuel recognized that this thing was of the Lord. Now, somewhere along the way, they must have lost uh, devotion to the true God. I had to think, too, of... Jacob, in his, elder, in his later years there in, in Egypt. <clears throat> As we know, there was a famine in the land. Joseph had been sold into slavery, into Egypt, and was there. And the famine caused the brothers of Jacob to uh, go to Egypt. And it was quite a journey. I don't know how far it was, but it was, it was a ways. There was food in Egypt. They had heard that there was food. So they went and found food and came home with that supply. Again, they ran out of food. And they wanted, Jacob wanted them to go to Egypt again to obtain more food. And the way that was set up, uh, Judah said, we can't go back unless we take Benjamin. I guess at that point, Benjamin was Jacob's favorite son. Jacob didn't want to let Benjamin go. He said, all these things are against me. Simeon is gone. Joseph is gone. And now you want to take Benjamin. He was kind of in a sad state. He was probably weak, physically faint from famine, emotionally drained and distraught at that point in his life. But these brothers persisted. They said, "We need to get this food and just let us take Benjamin." And Joseph um, Jacob finally relented. And he said, "Do all these things, chapter 43. If it must be so now, do this. Take the best fruits in the land, in your vessels, and carry down the man a present, a little balm, and a little honey, and spices, and myrrh, and nuts, and almonds. Now it sounds like they they had plenty there to send. I I don't know how bad the famine was. But he wanted to offer all these things. He was making a sacrifice. He wanted to do the best he could. He said, take double money in your hand and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carried again in your hand, peradventure adventure was an oversight. Take also your brother, and arise, and go again unto the man. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. In a sense, Joseph was requiring the heart of his father and the son, Benjamin. I thought of that as a type that God requires of us, our hearts. Jacob made that choice to let that go. And the other beautiful thing about that story, the brothers came back from that um, trip. With all the goods of Egypt. They came back with their brother Simeon. They came back with Benjamin. And they told their father, Joseph is yet alive. You know, funny thing, years ago they tried to convince their dad that Joseph was dead. And now they're trying to convince him he's alive. They said, Joseph did not believe him. His heart fainted. He believed him not. And so they insisted. They they told him all the words of Joseph. And they said, when he saw the wagons, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. He revived. He said, Joseph, my son, is alive. I shall yet go see him before I die. We need that revival. I should say, the, the ones that do not know Jesus need to come to that realization. There is a Savior. There is hope. Jesus is alive. And that stood out to me in that story. So I believe it can serve to inspire us to live for God. To have that devotion to God and, and to be inspired then with that realization that it produces fruit in our lives. With the anticipation we will go see him. We will see Jesus before we die. In other words, we need to meet him before that day of reckoning. That is true for all of us. So I really appreciate the um, your attention and, and your uh, presence and the presence of God and his Holy Spirit with us in these meetings and I hope some of this was of help to you. Um, the truth of God's word. It's always a blessing to me. and I feel like I've not really tapped into it. The little I've done is um, just scratch the surface of God's word. It's, it's such a powerful uh, tool for our day and time. To handle the things we face in life. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So this has been a, a blessed uh, time for me, and I, I just want to thank you all for your, for your hospitality and, and your fellowship. It's been great. Uh, do we have time for a song? Do you have a song we can sing yet? Or a chorus?